here's a few further details regarding the prayer of quiet, the first stage of the mystic union. It is the mystic union in which the divine action is not yet strong enough to hinder the distractions. It's called by St. Teresa, quote, the second manner of drawing the water which the Lord of the vineyard has ordained. This is the way to avoid false rules of conduct and to cooperate with the divine action. We must avoid too much self-analysis, avoid over-introspection. We do not arrive at a clearer view of our state. We only disturb ourselves uselessly. Both St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross hold the doctrine that the devil cannot imitate the true mystic state when a soul is truly and in union with God. In their first place, there is one character the devil would be careful not to imitate, at least sincerely, and this is the impulse towards virtue. And then the actual foundation of this prayer is beyond his powers, while the contrary holds good with regard to revelations and visions, such at any rate as are not purely intellectual. For according to the teaching of the schools, neither good nor evil angels can act directly upon the intelligence or upon the will. They operate upon our interior faculties only, the imagination and the feelings and this agency of the body alone. The devil, like the good angel, may awaken sensible images as well as pleasure and emotions of the same order. But all mystic writers declare that this disturbance of the lower faculties is powerless to produce the mystical knowledge of God and the union corresponding with it. In the same way, there can be no counterfeit proceeding from our own minds. The true mystic contemplation has an assemblage of characters that we can never reproduce at will. It is greatly to the devil's interest that you should act in the contrary manner, that you should consider yourself as being inspired and even a prophet. And you would in this way commit great imprudences which would destroy your credit so that you wouldn't accomplish the good to which your state of prayer should have led you and would bring you into states of contempt. And that is evident that the expression listening to God is purely metaphorical. As an instance of these exaggerations, let us quote a 17th century writer who really little in sympathy with mysticism shows himself over enthusiastic in his passage saying, the conscience of these souls is an exact and perfect book. The Holy Spirit generally says and does everything while these souls have only to read and look at what is happening. The Spirit of God in them is a real teacher who instructs them incessantly." Unquote. It may perhaps be so in the case of certain ecstatics at certain moments at least, but it is a wild fantasy to depict the inferior degrees in this fashion. The saints themselves were not content, quote, to read and to look, quote, in the divine book. This is a very important part here because we see, for example, that certain great founders of religious orders, St. Dominic, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Ignatius, and St. Francis of Sales, groped about 
as it were to a large extent before they found the true form of their institute or of many of their characteristic rules. It was not sufficient for them, therefore, to turn over the leaves of the divine book. There is another significant fact. During the Great Western Schism, the saints were not all of one mind, not even those who had the gift of reading consciences. What does this tell us? It's telling us that despite whatever gifts or graces that are given to us from God, we can never become arrogant. We must always continue to utilize discernment and that requires us to study, to engage in spiritual reading, to continue to pray and meditate. And we do not place ourselves in a position of believing that from one vision or from 10 or a hundred visions or a thousand that we know all truth. We must be willing to recognize that the discernment process must continue and it requires us to go well beyond our own understanding of these things, to go well beyond our own experience of these things, to take into consideration the experience of others of these things, and to take within this divine scripture, the ancient sacred texts, the writings of the saints, the great writings of mystical theology, the great writings of ascetical theology to form our discernment. So we must not become proud in our thinking because this can completely destroy the value of the gift itself. That's so important because there is a huge, huge temptation to pride when people receive these gifts. We forget that humility is the hallmark of a mystic. You never forget from where you stand, which is we stand upon earth as a lowly creature who is not God. To think about that too, let's just take that because this is something that I think is so important. People do think I had a couple of experiences and therefore I understand all things. But what you find is that the more experiences you have, the less you realize you know. So I've had thousands of experiences. And so now I realize that I know less. I know less and less and less. And then when we go beyond our own experience and we understand how many experiences have been had by all the prophets, saints, mystics, sages, and ascetics? And have we taken all of that in? Have we taken all of the near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences that have been had by every human being throughout history? No, we haven't. So we do not embody all of revelation. We just don't. No one single soul can embody all of that. If we are not continually forming and allowing ourselves to receive more and more from not just our own experience, the experiences of others, the sacred writings that have been handed down to us, which is also from the experiences of others, also the theological writings, the mystical and ascetical theologies, then we don't even have a foundation for the beginning of discernment. And discernment is an act of humility. 
engaging in discernment indicates an awareness that we don't know and therefore we need to engage in a deep and thorough investigation of something before we come to a conclusion or we have to have that humble disposition to recognize that there will be many things for which we don't know we are not the final authority on anything only god knows the heart of a man and so we can never go there. Continuing on with the teachings of the saints, and this is how you become a great mystic, is by becoming less and less. Father Poulain says, I have put souls on their guard against the inspirations or impulsions that they believe themselves to receive relating to their conduct. But the contrary attitude should be recommended for things seen suddenly and luminously with the eye of faith and which give a higher comprehension not of novelties but of truths held by the church such illuminations can be accompanied by no drawbacks they are on the contrary very precious graces at times the above illusion occurs in a modified form so these are important modifications here the person doesn't count on the gift of prophecy or even on inspirations in cases of difficulty. He merely expects more help than if he had continued in the ordinary way. So far, there's nothing that is not quite reasonable. But here's where the illusion begins. He's inclined to say, I need not exercise such great care over my conduct. God will be responsible for preserving me from all faults and all imprudences. And further, he exhibits a special friendship towards me. Now, friendship knows how to turn its eyes away from seeing slight fault. This would be a very unsound argument. Here again, God has never engaged to preserve you from faults and still less from blunders. You are tempting God here. It is still your job to do the work of the ascetical theology, to do the work of working through the virtues and the vices in your own life. Those who begin to experience supernatural states of prayer should not exaggerate the confidence that they feel in being the object of a special providence on God's part. God has not promised to perform miracles in order to preserve them from false notions and imprudences of contact. It is for them to be on their guard and to accept serious direction. Here we talk some more details regarding the full union, which is the second stage of the mystic union. First of all, it is a mystic union one of such strength that the soul is fully occupied with the divine object. In a word, there are no distractions. Two, the senses continue to act or partially so at any rate by a greater or less effort. Moreover, it is possible fully to reestablish relations with the external world to move and thus come out of our prayer. Where it differs from the prayer of quiet, the fundamental difference is that the soul is plunged much more deeply in God. So that is the difference between the first and second stage of that mystic union. But the third is that there is a much greater certainty of God's presence in the soul. St. Teresa proceeds to ask herself in the way of perfection, in what the prayer of quiet differs from that of union. And she says, 
the absence of distractions and the almost total disappearance of effort on the part of the soul. Anonymous writer states, it is an interior sensation by which the soul is made aware that God is uniting himself with her and making her participate in his life. St. Teresa compares the soul in the enjoyment of the full union to the silkworm enveloped in the cocoon that it has spun for itself. And then it comes fresh from this state like a lovely little white butterfly. This comparison seems to imply a transformation and refers consequently to the spiritual marriage, which is called the transforming union. You yourself admit that according to the saint, the soul does not merit the name of butterfly until she has left this prayer. But during the prayer itself, and each time that she falls back into it, she's more like a silkworm. It's therefore a question of a transformation in behavior and not of a new manner of operation during the continuance of the mystic state. So now going towards ecstasy, which is the third stage of the mystical union. Supernatural ecstasy is a state that not only at the outset, but during its whole existence contains two essential elements. The first, which is interior and invisible, is a very intense attention to some religious subject. Second, which is corporeal and visible is the alienation of the sensible faculties. This last expression signifies not only that sensations no longer penetrate to the soul, but that it would be extremely difficult to produce them, either if one wished to do so oneself or if other persons endeavored to incite the action of the organs of sense. So there are various kinds of ecstasy. There's simple ecstasy, which generally comes on gently, little by little, or if it is not of great strength. As a rule, it is often thought not to contain any revelations. Rapture would be the second when it is sudden and violent. And three is the flight of the spirit when St. Teresa says, quote, the soul suddenly feels a rapid sense of motion that appears to hurry it away. This violent motion cannot as a rule be resisted, but in the case of simple ecstasy, resistance is possible, at least at the outset. The body continues in the position that it was when the rapture came upon it. God nearly always reveals secrets of the supernatural order in raptures, and as a rule, is it is felt that the understanding has been amplified. After a rapture, there may be a difficulty in resuming the ordinary exterior occupations, and this sometimes continues for several days. The memory of what has been seen is retained, but the soul does not usually know how to express this exalted knowledge. This is all coming from St. Teresa of Avila's interior castle. By means of our human language, which is very imperfect and which is obliged to make use of images, which are often irrelevant to the state of ecstasy. When the soul comes out of a rapture that has overtaken her in the middle of a conversation or a prayer, it often happens that she continues the phrase where it was broken off. 
Then there are intellectual visions of the divinity, and in the preceding degrees, God permitted the soul to lose herself in him more or less deeply, but ordinarily he did not allow himself to be seen. In rapture, the contrary usually happens. Several attributes that have been hidden now begin to manifest themselves. Then there is a state in ecstasy known as blinding contemplation. When God thus allows his attributes to be seen, a certain obscurity does always remain, but it is a singular thing that the stronger the light, the more dazzled, blinded does the soul feel. It is in this way that the sun would blind an owl and cause it suffering. An excess of light produces almost the same result as darkness. It is a mingling of knowledge and of ignorance, the ignorance being what strikes us the most. The attribute of incomprehensibility manifests itself more and more. We bury ourselves in the divine darkness. This effect of blindness is produced not merely by the too great strength of the divine light, but by the nature of certain attributes that have been manifested. Some of these attributes are a thousand times more incomprehensible to us than the others. The terrifying obscurity that they produce is called the great darkness. These profounder attributes are those that no creature can possess, those that are incommunicable, for example, infinity, eternity, the creative power, universal knowledge, immutability, aseity, which is the absence of an external cause, the absence of any real distinction between the attributes and their fusion in an indefinable and higher good that contains all other goods, the divine nature may be compared to the solar sphere. When our eyes contemplate this orb, they at first see the flaming exterior surface only, but through the fissures in this surface, astronomers perceive the great semi-obscure central nucleus. So in God, there are, as it were, two strata of attributes. Those on the surface can send out their light to creatures and be reflected in them. We already know these attributes in them. For example, beauty, justice, mercy, and intelligence. But above is the semi-obscurity of the central nucleus of the incommunicable attributes. The creature does not receive their radiance. And because our reason has nowhere encountered them, it stands abashed before this unexpected manifestation. And there results for us a special obscurity. The joy of attaining to a new and marvelous knowledge is mingled with the uneasiness of feeling that we are not fitted to understand them properly. Contemplation that is called by negation. The greater part of the incommunicable attributes can only be apprehended by our infantine intelligences or described indirectly by means of the negation of known things. But they exist in God in the positive state, and it is as positive quantities that infused contemplation attains to them, thus surpassing the reason which confines itself 
to the negative idea. And so when writers say that the contemplative proceeds by negation, they merely intend to allude to the imperfect and negative language that he is obliged to make use of in order to describe what is perceived. In the ordinary way of prayer, there is an acquired contemplation, which is also called contemplation by negation. But this is not a state of prayer. It is rather a way of forming ideas about God by declaring that such a perfection is not in him after the same manner as it is in creatures, but that it is present in a higher way. It is a negation followed by an explanatory affirmation. We must not confuse these philosophical mental operations with prayer, and still less with the mystic state it's true that many of the early writers speak of it as a kind of prayer. This, I think, due to an over-literal interpretation of Dionysius, the Areopagite. If anyone were to try to uphold this interpretation, Poulain would say to him, have you really met with contemplatives who can occupy themselves for an hour together with these negations? 